Good afternoon. Welcome to Sanctioned Citizen or the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Today is day twenty-two, respectively, of the podcast that we've been doing for one hundred days of call-in. Thank God we will get through this. Um, momentarily, I will be retrieving the the text for the trial of Julian Assange. I just wanted to to go over a few things. But first, I shall invite all the people. All the people that can be invited. Welcome to the show, Charlie, one of our favorites in attendance. I just wanted to mention that on Twitter today, it came to my attention that there is a new MP. It's like MP of the week here in the United Kingdom. I'm I'm not here in the United Kingdom, but there, in the United Kingdom, there's a man. His name is, I believe it's Sunak? And um, he's the new Prime Minister. And of course, he's being celebrated for being, you know, the color of a milk dud and Asian, you know. But uh, what is his claim to fame? Apparently, it's social credit scoring systems and CBDCs and digital IDs and you know of course it's not too late if, to do something about that if you're British Rishi, Rishi Sunak he launched a digital task force on Bank of England digital currencies this is what he's known for so let's see here let's go here yeah Rishi Sunak and his family run a China linked world economic forum partner company peddling digital ID and social credit scoring. So this guy is going to usher in the UK social caste system for white people and uh, and bring you back to the proper level of serfdom that they can tolerate uh, because they don't, they're unoriginal, they're unspiritual, and they can't tolerate anyone's freedom. So they want to return you to serfdom, proper serfdom, autocrated by the United Kingdom weak government of England who's run by a bunch of tabloids who are summarily owned by people like Rishi Sunak. That guy is to be deposed and that that stuff should not happen here in America. Period. Period. So, um, I'm going to, to take my leave of you for just a few moments and run some music while I grab the proper text of my book.
Okay, and we're back. Um, we're going to Chapter 7, the Anglo-Swedish extradition trial. So it took the matter of a week to get through Chapter 6 of this book because it was so thorough on the anatomy of, let me see here, the anatomy of a persecution. So we are reading... The Trial of Julian Assange, A Story of Persecution, Anglo-Swedish Anglo Extradition Trial. Here we go. Sweden refuses to offer a non-refoulement guarantee. From Berlin, Assange travels to, on to London, meanwhile for Prosecutor Nye. Getting him back to Sweden for questioning has suddenly become a matter of utmost urgency. Assange, too, is keen for an opportunity to be heard by the Swedish authorities and willing to return to Stockholm at his own expense. Already on 30 September, three days after his departure from Sweden, his lawyer, Bjorn Hertig, informs Deputy Director of Public Prosecution Erika Leitenfors that Assange is currently abroad and that an interview with him can be scheduled as early as 10 October 2010. A Sunday or any other day of her choice in the following week from 11 to 15 October. Legion Fours declines to schedule an interview on a Sunday because this would involve police officers working on the weekend and the week immediately following that Sunday is vetoed by Director of Public Prosecution Marianne Nye personally apparently because it is too far ahead. In her submission of 24 no November 2010 to the Svea Court of Appeal, Prosecutor Nye will insist that during this period we were extremely anxious to interview him. However, for more than one month while Assange was still in Sweden, his right to be heard and to defend himself was consistently denied, despite extremely damaging rape allegations and unlawfully leaked by the Swedish prosecution authority. And now that he had to travel from abroad, in order to be questioned in Sweden, prepared to pay his own way and to make himself available for an entire week, the prosecutor categorically refused to schedule an interview any time in the proposed period of 11 through the 15th of October, purportedly because she could not wait for as little as 10 days. As we will see, her anxiety to interview Assange would not prevent her from putting off that very interview for another six years while at the same time professing indignation over A and S being denied justice. In truth, of course, Assange's expected offer to return to Sweden so quickly must have been very inconvenient. It clearly did not fit the carefully constructed official narrative of the fugitive rapist to him to see him voluntarily return to Stockholm and respond to the allegations against him. So, when the authorities received intelligence that Assange planned to give a lecture in Stockholm, on 4 October, they changed their plans and instead arranged for him to be arrested in a police raid at the venue. In order to secure the desired media coverage of this spectacular arrest, the press had been proactively alerted. The trap remained unsuccessful. Assange did not come to Sweden on 4 October. So far, both Assange and his lawyer had interpreted Prosecutor Nye's relaxed manner as indicating that she intended to close the investigation without even bothering to interview him. From a procedural 
perspective, this seemed to be the only good faith explanation for consistently declining to take Assange's statement and refusing to provide his lawyer with even the most basic information about the precise allegations made against him. But with her obstructive approach becoming increasingly obvious, Assange begins to grow suspicious. Around the same time, reports multiply of a U.S. grand jury working on a secret indictment against Assange. In view of the accumulating irregularities in the Swedish proceedings and the country's subservient proximity to U.S. intelligence services, Assange fears, not unreasonably, that Sweden might surrender him to the United States without any form of due process, as it did with Agiza and Algeria a few years earlier. To allay these concerns, Assange wants a guarantee. The Swedish authorities should issue a written assurance that were he to return to Sweden, he would not be extradited onwards to the United States, where he could expect an unfair trial for espionage and inhumane conditions of, of detention. Sorry. Assange's request is straightforward, but the response he received is evasive in the extreme. According to the Swedish authorities, no guarantee of non-extradition can be given so long as the United States has not made an extradition request. Moreover, extradition decisions are a judicial matter for the courts, in which the government cannot interfere. After all, Sweden is a constitutional democracy governed by the rule of law. While this response may seem convincing at first glance, it has no basis in either law or practice. In reality, such a diplomatic assurance are a standard instrument of international relations and are widely used around the world, especially in connection with the extradition and deportation of foreigners. The extraditing or deporting state requests, written assurances from the destination or transit state that the person to be extradited will not be executed, tortured, or otherwise mistreated under any circumstances that their procedural rights are guaranteed and that, in accordance with the universal principle of non-refoulement, they will not be extradited to a third state in which their human rights protection is not guaranteed. In practice, such non-refoulement guarantees are routinely given naturally without requiring a prior extradition request by the potentially unsafe third state. Likewise, the all-time favorite smokescreen advanced by Western democracies trying to evade their human rights obligations, namely that the government cannot interfere with pending judicial proceedings, does not stand up to scrutiny. In Sweden, as in most other countries, the government has prerogative to refuse any extradition on political grounds, irrespective of whether it has been approved by the judiciary. Excuse me. Clearly, the reasons why Sweden consistently declined to offer Assange a guarantee of non-refoulement were not constitutional but purely political, and Assange had every reason to be concerned, particularly with the given long-standing and unconstitutional collusion between Stockholm and Washington in matters of national security and intelligence, which WikiLeaks itself had exposed to the world. This is why on 8 October and 12 November 2010, Assange's lawyer, Hertig, proposes to the Swedish prosecution authority that Assange be questioned by phone or video conference on the basis of applicable international mutual legal assistance agreements. In the alternative, he offers that Assange would also be prepared to provide a statement in writing or to attend an interview in person 
at the Australian Embassy, as expressly acknowledged in the agreed statement of facts and issues before the British Supreme Court, all of these possibilities are permitted in Swedish law. Nevertheless, all of them are declined as inappropriate by the Swedish Prosecution Authority. Prosecutor Nye insisting that Assange be interviewed in person in Sweden. Sweden refuses to interview Assange in London. On 18 November 2010, Marianne Nye requests and receives a detention order in absentia from the Stockholm District Court, which is confirmed by the Peel's Court on 24 November. On this basis, the prosecutor issues a European arrest warrant against Assange. Officially, this is nothing but a logical consequence of his alleged attempt to evade justice for sexual offenses by quote-unquote fleeing from Sweden to the United Kingdom. Nye wants Assange to be arrested in London and subsequently extradited to Sweden. At her request, Interpol furthers a issued red notice for Assange, a level of worldwide police alert usually reserved for internationally wanted fugitives formally indicted or convicted of a crime. But Assange has neither been indicted nor convicted. He is a cooperative suspect in a preliminary investigation who has been keen to respond to the rape allegations against him ever since they were illegally leaked by the authorities on 20 August 2010. But who is not prepared to risk his irregular rendition to the United States? On the day of his arrest, the U.S. consultancy firm Stratfor will note, Charges of sexual assault rarely are passed through Interpol red notices like this case, so this is no doubt about trying to disrupt WikiLeaks' release of government documents. Indeed, Prosecutor Nye's decision comes exactly 10 days before the planned and announced release of Cablegate on 28 November, a truly monumental leak of global proportions, which has terrified U.S. government desperately scrambling for a damage control. A mere coincidence? Certainly not. The Director of Public Prosecution knows, of course, that her aggressive action will foment another media hype and further damages to Assange's reputation, not only in the eyes of the public, but also in the eyes of all the governments that are about to be embarrassed by the release of a quarter of a million U.S. diplomatic cables. As an experienced prosecutor, she also knows that her, her approach is grossly disproportionate in this case. After all, Assange had clearly cooperated and even repeatedly requested to be interviewed throughout his stay in Sweden. He had expressly requested and received authorization to leave Sweden. He had offered to return to Sweden for an interview on any day from 10 to 15 October 2010. He had repeated that offer for a letter date on the condition of non-refoulement, guarantee, and alternatively was willing to be interviewed through mutual legal assistance in London or by phone or video conference. A former Swedish judge, Britta Sundberg Whiteman, sees this as a clear breach of the principle of proportionality enshrined in European law, which stipulates that the public authorities may interfere with individual rights only to the extent that necessary and justified to achieve a legitimate purpose. It remains a mystery, not only to the Sunbird Whiteman, why Marianne and I refused to question Assange personally in London or by telephone or video conference, when both would have been possible without any problems under existing mutual legal assistance agreements. Former Swedish prosecutor Sven-Erik Alhem 
goes a step further. In my view, whoa, hello, where did you go? Well, that dropped out. My power went kaput. Sorry about that. I didn't think that was going to happen. So, if that caps our reading for today, I'm sorry. I don't really know what happened. My text went, it's not your fault. <laughs> I just want to indicate that I'm going to run this promo while you're all here so I can figure out what's going on technically. I am starting a new nonprofit. So let me just cue this up if I can. I put it in my sound my sound uh see here. Do 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 L I R C Thank you guys for being so patient. You are a good audience and you stand by the programming. So there it is. Let's just cue it up. Boom boom. Let's try to get going. The American people are facing enormous pressures on identity. The onslaught of monetization using bricks, universal threats applied to central bank digital currencies, demand for universal identity credentialing for social credit scoring systems. And then, there, of course, there's state manipulation of tech companies, with or without legal compliance, censoring and depriving citizens in good faith, transacting with e-commerce systems, using clandestine sanctions measures for U.S. or other foreign governments, with or without notice, by parallel opponents of individual rights and your legal sovereignty. For this, we usher in a new nonprofit. It is my pleasure to announce the Liberty and Identity Rights Center of Texas, it is a project of nonprofit corporation based in Austin, Texas. We are looking for donors, board commissioners, i.e. secretary or treasurer, for filing statements this fall of 2022. If you are interested in development, grant writing, fiscal sponsorship, or becoming a financial officer for the Liberty and Identity Rights Center of Texas, please send direct correspondence to 310-857-8257 or contact us at SheilaMDean.com. Hang in there. We will get through this. So that was it. I am back on on cue here. Okay, so we're at la, 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 in my view. So former Swedish prosecutor Sven Erik Alhem goes a step further. In my view, only when it was first shown that it would be impossible to get Assange interrogated in England by using mutual aid legal assistance from England should an application for EAW have been submitted. Since I understand that he has been willing to be interviewed by these means since leaving Sweden, I regard the prosecutor's refusal to at least interview him as being unreasonable and unprofessional as well as unfair and disproportionate. In January 2011, Bjorn Hertig tries to put pressure on prosecutor Nye to question his client in London. Her response, which sends to Hertig by SMS text messages on 11 January of 10.58 a.m., is succinct. Hi. For investigative reasons, a request for legal assistance for questioning England is not relevant. Best regards, Marianne Nye. In an earlier press interview of 5th December 2010, she had, all, she had even falsely claimed that Swedish law prevented her from interviewing Assange in London. 
According to Britta Sundberg Whiteman, this is clearly not true. Sven Erik Alhem comments that there is, quote, nothing in Swedish law that I know of to prevent a prosecutor from seeking mutual legal assistance to have suspect to have a suspect interviewed. The same is later confirmed in the quote agreed statement of facts and issues unquote before the British Supreme Court. Defense counsel Hertig refuses to give up and on nine February twenty eleven submits a complaint to the Swedish Swedish prosecutor general asking for a legal review of Nye's refusal to question Assange in London. But instead of adjudicating the matter himself, the prosecutor general refers it back to Nye, asking her to treat Hertig's complaint as a request for reconsideration. On 14 February 2011, Prosecutor Nye then comes to the unsurprising conclusion that she can find no reason to revise her own decision. The interview planned with Assange must take place in Sweden for investigative reasons. These include, among other things, that the interview with Assange must be conducted in the same manner as the interviews with other persons in this investigation, and that these interviews are likely to lead to further investigative measures. Water. This is a rather brazen justification given that the initial interviews with most witnesses had, and one of the alleged victims had been conducted by phone whereas Assange had personally come to the police station for questioning on 30 August of 2010. Assange's first arrest and release on bail. Meanwhile, Assange continues to work from London. In late autumn 2010, he prepares the two largest WikiLeaks releases so far, again in collaboration with some of the world's most prominent newspapers and magazines. On the evening of 22 October, WikiLeaks releases the Iraq War Logs, almost 400,000 American logs covering the Iraq War from 2004 to 2009 and providing an undistorted chronicle of unlawful war aggression. Suddenly everything is out in the open, page after page, log after log. The entire world can read what actually happened during the six years of Operation Iraqi Freedom. WikiLeaks offers an inside view of war whose true horrors have been largely concealed or whitewashed by official U.S. statements. The documented atrocity condenses and, as it so often does, into unbearable figures. By the end of 2009, the Iraq War had already claimed at least 132 deaths, including more than 66,000 Iraqi civilians. At the same time, it is revealed that the United States knowingly exposed thousands of detainees to torture and abuse, abandoning them in the hands of Iraqi security forces and ordering U.S. forces not to investigate such crimes. With these disclosures, WikiLeaks puts a harsh and definite end to any humanitarian myths that may have still lingered about the Iraq War. On 26 October, the U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights, Navi Pillay, called for an investigation and punishment of the documented human rights violations, and even the U.S. government did not dispute the veracity of the material. Remarkably, to date, WikiLeaks does not appear to have published a single document that was falsified or even questionable in its authenticity, not a claim many media organizations can make. Four weeks later, Cablegate marks the third and final phase in the journalistic processing of the material leaked by Chelsea Manning. This time, the focus is on U.S. diplomacy. 
In the last 48 hours before the publication begins, an important correspondence takes place between Assange, U.S. Ambassador Sussman in London, and the U.S. State Department in Washington. On the 26th of November, Assange asks the U.S. government to alert WikiLeaks to, quote, any specific instances, record numbers, or names, where it considers the publication of information would put individual persons at significant risk of harm that has not already been addressed. He assures that WikiLeaks will respect the confidentiality of, of advice provided by the United States government and is prepared to consider any such submissions without delay. However, in his response on 27 November, State Department legal advisor Harold Koo makes clear that we will not engage in a negotiation regarding the further release or dissemination of illegally obtained U.S. government classified materials. On the following day, 28 November 2010, WikiLeaks and its publication partners, The Guardian, The New York Times, El Pais, Der Spiegel, and Le Monde, begin the process of publishing what will add up to over 250,000 classified pieces of U.S. diplomatic correspondence. Importantly, despite the U.S. government's refusal to cooperate in the redaction of these documents, WikiLeaks and its publication partners conduct a rigorous harm reduction process in which every single document is reviewed and any information is redacted that could have exposed individuals to risk. Initially, only documents that have been selected and redacted by journalists of the aforementioned newspapers are made available on the WikiLeaks website. Contrary to common assumptions, Assange decides to publish the unredacted Cablegate materials only nine months later on 1 September 2011, after they have already been made publicly accessible by combining information published by two Guardian journalists and the German weekly Der Freetag. Assange tries in vain to converse to Freetag not to publish the relevant information precisely because he is worried about potentially ensuing risk for certain individuals mentioned by name in the unredacted documents. When Der Freetag nevertheless insists on publishing the scoop in late August 2011, Assange alerts the U.S. government in advance, making clear that his publication, this publication would occur without the consent of or control of WikiLeaks and in engages with the U.S. officials to try and ensure proper harm reduction. We will return to this issue in more detail later. Cablegate com comprises primarily confidential diplomatic correspondence between the U.S. State Department and the U.S. embassies in various countries. Intended exclusively for internal consumption, the tone of this correspondence is often unvarnished and devoid of diplomacy. The content of the cables ranges from gossip and discourteous portraits of foreign officials to sober assessments of international conflicts, but also includes evidence of collusion between the United States and its allies and extraordinary rendition and torture, as well as other machinations of U.S. power politics. For example, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's secret National Human Intelligence Collection Directive instructed U.S. diplomats to collect intelligence on top U.N. officials, including biographic and biometrical data, credit cards, passwords, and personal encryption keys used for official communications. Other examples include the Swedish government's extensive civilian and military intelligence collusion with the United States, which was deliberately kept secret from the Swedish parliament and their public. Never before have a government's diplomatic practices been exposed on such a scale. For the U.S. government, the reputational damage inflicted by Cablegate 
and the accompanying media coverage is immense. As can be seen from immediate reactions, the United States feels not only embarrassed, but increasingly powerless and threatened. The long arm of the U.S. government ensures that WikiLeaks comes under serious pressure. Its website becomes a target of cyber attacks. Amazon cancels important server capacity rented by the organization. Its accounts are blocked, and credit companies as well as financial service providers terminate their cooperation. But the primary target remains Assange. He is the visible head of WikiLeaks. He can be attacked personally without making the assault on press freedom and freedom of information too obvious. Political leaders and journalists outdo each other in condemning Assange, accusing him of espionage, treason, and even terrorism. Extrapolating from Cablegate the documents, it is not too difficult to imagine how, with spectacular release, the U.S. government increases the pressure on its allies to take Assange off the streets for good. At the time, Assange is the guest of Vaughn Smith, staying at his country house, Ellingham Hall, near London. Smith, a former British Army captain, war reporter, and founder of the Frontline Press Club in London, and WikiLeaks sympathizer, considers Assange a kindred spirit on issues of freedom of expression and press freedom. Approximately one week after the release of the first series of diplomatic cables on 28 November 2010, Assange is informed that EAW issued against him by the Swedish Director of Prosecution had formally certified by the British authorities. The following day, 7 December, Assange voluntarily reports to London Kentish House Police Station. It is the British police that finally informs Assange of the Swedish allegations against him. Ever since, Prosecutor Nye had reopened and expanded the preliminary investigation against Assange three months earlier, she had consistently refused to provide him with the most basic information, another piece in the puzzle. Had he known precisely what misconduct the prosecutor suspected him of, he could have stymied her strategy of procrastination by independently making a public statement responding to each point. But by publicly suspecting Assange of rape while never informing him of the details, the prosecutor deprived him of any effective possibility of defense without herself having to present any evidence in support of these allegations. The strategy worked brilliantly. The longer the stalemate lasted, the deeper the official narrative of the fugitive rapist took root and crystallized in the collective mind of the world public. As a result, eight years later, even I would eventually decline to look into his case. But on 7 December 2010, Assange voluntarily submits to arrest and is placed in solitary confinement in Wandsworth Prison for nine days until he is released on bail and allowed to return to Ellingham Hall on 16 November. Sorry, December. Numerous prominent supporters have vouched for him and raised the required bail of 200,000 pounds. For the next 550 days, as part of his bail conditions, Assange will have to live under house arrest, wear an electronic ankle bracelet, and report to the police daily. Most importantly, in February of 2011, he will face a hearing at Westminster Magistrates Court to discuss the Swedish extradition request. Okay, how many minutes are we? Oh, 17. Good. So, Anglo-Swedish collusion. In early January 2011, Swedish prosecution authority shows the first signs of doubt. On 11 January, in preparation for the upcoming extradition hearing, Assange's defense team 
presents its primary arguments and evidence and also names renowned Swedish experts as witnesses. This may have caused the Swedish authorities to pause for a moment and ponder how far they had already strayed from justice and the rule of law. At least temporarily, it seemed, it almost seemed as if Prosecutor Nye had changed her mind and was now seriously entertaining the idea of interviewing Assange in London. But then something remarkable happens. The British Crown Prosecution Services, CPS, which represents Swedish interest in the extradition proceedings, advises against doing just that. My earlier advice remains that, in my view, it would not be prudent for the Swedish authorities to try to interview the defendant in the UK. Paul Close writes on 25th January of 2011 in an email to the Swedish Prosecution Authority. Note that he does not claim that interviewing Assange in London would be would not be permissible or possible, but rather that it would not be prudent. He goes on to explain that the defense would, without any doubt, seek to turn the events to its advantage. It would inevitably allege that it was conclusive proof that the Swedish authorities had no case whatsoever against him, and hence the interview was in the hope that he would make a full and frank confession. Furthermore, he adds, alluding to the Swedish practice of detaining race suspects without bail, general experience has also shown that attempts by foreign authorities to interview a defendant in the UK frequently leads to the defense retort that some inducements or threats were made by the interviewers, such as the prosecutor's approach to bail under the defendant's surrender to the foreign state. Thus, I suggest that you interview him only on his surrender to Sweden and in accordance with Swedish law, end quote. So the British official goes on to provide the guidance to the Swedes on how to gloss over the most problematic aspects of their entire investigation in the upcoming extradition hearing at the Westminster Magistrates Court. Quote, as we have discussed in your prosecution, it is well based on the existing evidence and is sufficient to proceed to trial, which is the prosecution's intention. The following and apparently important paragraph is redacted, followed by the sentence, You have the evidence of the complaints. The email closes with the renewed assurances of support in analyzing and responding to the defense arguments in court and recommends a purely formal line, namely that Marianne Nye can issue a European arrest warrant and that Swedish authorities actually still do want to prosecute the defendant. In other words, any substantive arguments or complaints about Swedish due process violations are not to be addressed because these matters are not to be adjudicated by the courts in the United Kingdom, but by those in Sweden. On the face of it, this is not a British case. Neither Assange nor the two women are British nationals. The alleged offenses have not occurred in Britain, and the case is unlikely to result in an indictment let alone a conviction, due to the lack of prosecutable evidence. So why is the CPS so keen to avoid a quick, uncomplicated, and cost-effective resolution of this case through mutual legal assistance? Why needlessly lock Assange into a lengthy extradition proceeding that would generate a heavy workload and substantial expenses for the British government and judiciary? Well, if there is one simple truism that has never failed me in my investigations of war crimes, and human rights violations, it is that where there is smoke, there is fire. And where there is a lot of smoke, there must be a big fire. From now on, we will see that. Whenever the British authorities deal with Assange, they make 
far more smoke than would, would be warranted by the issues supposedly at stake. As we advance through the following months, it will become increasingly difficult to escape the impression that British authorities are pursuing a political agenda that goes far beyond Swedish extradition requests. This impression is confirmed verbatim in another email sent by Paul Close to Marianne Nye on 13 January of 2011. Quote, Please do not think that this is the case being dealt with as just another extradition request. End quote. Over the next 18 months, ex, uh, Assange's extradition trial proceeds through all three instances in the British judicial systems, Magistrates Court, High Court and Supreme Court. On 30 May of 2012, Supreme Court confirms the permissibility of the European arrest warrant issued by the Swedish prosecutor, and thus greenlighting Assange's extradition to Sweden. What sounds like a simple and straightforward matter warrants a closer look. Sorry, closer look. To the layman, the following explanations on the EAW may seem technical and dull at first but they will quickly illuminate the extent to which even the high, highest British court appears to be prepared to betray the rule of law for the sake of a desired political outcome. So, here is a European arrest warrant in a nutshell. Between member states of the European Union and the UK was still part of the EU in 2012, a valid standardized EAW is sufficient to obtain an extradition. Whether there are sufficient evidentiary grounds to suspect, indict, or convict a person of a crime does not need to be examined by the extraditing country. In contrast, the two extradition cases involving destination countries outside the EU, the entire procedure takes place on purely formal grounds. Questions of guilt or innocence, credibility, and probative value are not raised in the extradition proceedings but only during the subsequent criminal trial in the destination country. Therefore, none of these arguments can be raised effectively by Assange's lawyers as a defense against extradition to Sweden. From this formal perspective, only two conditions must be met to obtain extradition within the EU. First, under the principle of dual criminality, the offenses of which a person is suspected or charged must also be punishable in the country in which he is currently located. This requirement is met because Assange is suspected of rape and sex coercion in Sweden, both of which are criminal offenses also in the UK. Second, and the, this is the primary bone of contention in Assange's case, the EAW must have issued a competent, by a competent authority. Both the EU Framework Decision of 2002 regulating the EAW system and the British Extradition Act of 2003, which implement the EU decision in the United Kingdom, required that an EAW must be issued by a judicial authority. This requirement reflects the aim of the Framework Decision to depoliticize the extradition process throughout Europe by withdrawing it from the executive branch of government and placing it under the control of the respective judicial authorities. This is the point of attack for Assange's defense lawyers. In his case, the European arrest warrant, UA, the EAW, has been issued by Marianne Nye, a prosecutor, not a judge. Hence, Assange's lawyers argue the warrant is not issued by a judicial authority and therefore is not a valid basis for Assange's extradition to Sweden. That also appears to be the British legal position.
as the Supreme Court confirms during the British parliamentary debates surrounding the adoption of the 2003 Extradition Act, it was repeatedly emphasized that the term judicial authority necessarily implied a court or a judge, not the police or a public prosecutor, and that this requirement would not be affected by the implementation of the EU framework decision. Sweden and a few other EU states have interpreted the term judicial authority more broadly to include prosecutors, but this was not binding for the British judiciary because, strictly speaking, it was not the wording of the overarching EU framework decision that the British judges had to interpret, but the British Extradition Act, which had been adopted for the implementation of this decision. What was relevant for the Supreme Court was the interpretation given to the term judicial authority by the British Parliament and not by other EU states. Thus, in an email to Marianne Nye, dated 8 February 2012, her British colleague from the Crown Prosecution Service writes with growing concern, the court seems rather troubled by the whole question of other countries having such a wide interpretation of judicial authority. In particular, how can it include prosecutors or officials from ministries of justice. I would stress again that it is UK law which is under the judicial spotlight not Swedish law. According to British legal tradition prosecutor Marianne Knight clearly is not a judicial authority. In order to still upload her EAW and allow Assange's extradition to Sweden the Supreme Court must now engage in judicial acrobatics that can be better described as legal contortions. In paragraph 93 of its ruling, the court acknowledges that the British Parliament's explicitly narrow interpretation of the notion of judicial authority is certainly disturbing, but then ventures to say it would be going at least one step too far in constitutional terms for this court to treat it as determinative. The majority of the judges are guided by the hypothesis that, regardless of their expressed positions taken in the le legislative debate, members of Parliament could not have intended to legislate contrary to the UK's international obligations, but actually preferred to interpret their own extradition act in conformity with the wording of the EU framework decision. The problem is, of course, that the meaning of the wording chosen in the EU framework decision only a year earlier was completely uncertain in 2003 when the UK extradition act came before the British Parliament, which is precisely why clarifying parliamentary debate was necessary in the first place. But since then, we learn from the Supreme Court an inconsistent practice has developed through the EU, throughout the EU, with, rough, with roughly one half of the member states restricting the term judicial authority to adjudicating officials and bodies, which excludes prosecutors, whereas the other half interprets the same term more comprehensively and, in some cases, even extends it to prosecutors. In view of these highly challenging circumstances, the judges find it imperative to ignore the parliamentary genesis of the directly applicable British Extradition Act and instead consider the administrative genesis of the EU framework decision, even though it is not directly applicable as a matter of law. The original first draft of this instrument, having been written in French, the judges further conclude that the priority must be imperatively given to the original French wording. The meaning of the French term autorité judiciaire 
however, has not been defined nor has it been clarified through uniform practice. Therefore, autorité judiciaire can be interpreted either narrowly as preferred by the British Parliament or more broadly as preferred by the government of Sweden. Oh my god. <laughs> For a variety of multi-layered and rather convoluted motives, five out of seven judges then happen to personally prefer the comprehensive interpretation of the French term autorité judiciaire, which also includes a public prosecutor. As a matter of logic, they argue, this expansive interpretation must therefore be regarded as binding also for the interpretation of the English term, judicial authority, not only in the English version of the EU framework decision, but also in the British Extradition Act. Even though Parliament had expressly opted for the opposite interpretation, et voila, Prosecutor Nye's European arrest warrant is valid, and Assange can be extradited to Sweden. So, you couldn't make it up. The Honorable Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, bending over backwards in deference to the political interests, and not hesitating to refer to the French text of an inapplicable EU framework decision in order to interpret the original English wording of a directly applicable domestic legislation differently than Parliament and then claiming that this is what Parliament presumably would have wanted in the first place. This is so uncomfortable. Once their decision was in the bag, the judges nevertheless expressed their concern at the fact that the British Extradition Act, contrary to the explicit recommendation of the EU Council, does not require a proportionality test in order to ensure that a draconian coercive measure, such as the as extradition to another country is justified in each individual case. In the Assange case, this question arose primarily because Sweden did not request the extradition of a person formally accused or convicted of a crime, but of a cooperative suspect in a preliminary investigation who had already been voluntarily interviewed and who was ready and willing to respond to further questions on the spot, in London, or by telephone, or video conference. Excuse me, water. Dear God. Although the Supreme Court conveniently found that it could not examine the proportionality of Assange's extradition in the absence of a corresponding legal provision in the Extradition Act, it made no secret of the fact that this was a formal shortcoming that needed to be addressed. A hint that was duly taken up by Parliament. Two years later, legislation came into force stipulating that from now on every single extradition would be subject to a proportionality test and that no person could be extradited before being formally charged with a crime. Both provisions would have prevented Assange's extradition to Sweden and would have allowed him to leave his diplomatic asylum at the Ecuadorian Embassy as a free man. But Parliament made sure to add a non-retroactivity clause that prevented the application of these new provisions to extradition cases that had already been decided but not yet executed. <sighs> so there was actually exactly one man in the entire United Kingdom to whom this retroactivity clause applied. It was a Lex Assange, and it had been poignantly termed tailor-made by the British authorities for the persecution of a man 
who is constantly accused of evading justice, but who quite on the contrary is being constantly deprived of justice precisely by those same authorities. So Assange's lawyers avail themselves of one last legal remedy requesting the Supreme Court to reopen the appeal, which is rejected on 14 June of 2012. This means that Assange has now definitely exhausted the legal remedies available to him in the United Kingdom. The following day, Prosecutor Marianne Nye requested that the Supreme Court permit his immediate surrender to Sweden, thus effectively withdrawing the suspensive effect of a possible appeal by Assange to the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. The court declines and grants Assange a final reprieve of 14 days. Nonetheless, his extradition to Sweden, and so he fears, his subsequent irregular surrender to the United States are now imminent. Okay, that's the end of that chapter. All right, so where are we at? look here in the comments. Who do we have with us? We have Charlie, Obsolete, Joshua, Hussein, Barry, equals Murphy and Alana, the sugar, sugar-coated sandwich. So Murphy says, there's quite a bit of dialogue here, Stratforger! <laughs> it was the NSA that cut you off. Oh, they, everybody was, you know, pontificating about what the what the technical issue was. It was a legitimate technical issue. Um, Reese, what about smoke machines? I have no idea. Murphy, have you read the judgments in full? The EAW has two layers of appeal to block S- extradition. Okay, we went there, Murphy. And then you heard it if you were paying attention. They exhausted, I think they went through two or three. And then the High Court judgment relating to the U.S. appeal against Judge Bar- or Barrister overturned in favor of the DOJ is illuminating. So he did comment there. That's very good. Obsolete Optics says the Fed answers to the CFR. The, that would be the Council for Foreign Relations. So does the World Economic Forum at Flyover Man. So that was Jonathan. I don't know. Is he still here? No. Okay. So. Um... So the Crown Council of 13 is at the top of the hierarchy pyramid. Now we're getting into the conspiracy weeds. Uh, Beneath them is the Committee of 300. Beneath them is all the international alphabet agencies, such as the CFR, WEF, IMF, World Bank, UN, la la la. Okay, so Murphy says, wait, are you sure Assange's entire appeal to him? This is, by the way, look up diplomatic dote. Diplomatic note number 169, dated 19 October 2021. Interesting. And then Murphy, Murphy, would you like to jump up here? You seem to know a lot about this. I'm going to just invite you. You have a lot of background on this, it seems to be. So I, I, I don't know anything. I'm reading a text written by a UN rapporteur, and you seem to know details. So you've been invited to speak. If you accept, then it would be to the great benefit of our audience if you would. Because the appeal we have been through the past few years was the U.S. appealing, which is interesting information. But, you know, if you have any direct, like, articles...
papers or legal legal citations that would be helpful, Murphy. Um, you know, I, I take it on good faith that you're you're saying this, but poor old Assange is sitting in in Belmarsh prison as a result of an exhaustively uh, bended uh, legal agreement where I think they had deferred to the EU framework. Since he's been in the Kalanker, been in confinement, there was a Brexit. And so I think that there was routine license taken on, against the parliamentary law in, in Britain. And Brexit was part of leaving the EU structure because they weren't getting as much out of it as they said that they were. And that could mean that there's kind of a re reconfiguration around global law, especially when it comes to the, the EU conglomerate. <laughs> That's my guess there. I don't know if it changed any outcomes for Assange because I don't know what happened, whether he was actually extradited to Sweden or not. He seemed to have run to the Ecuadorian embassy at that time, and that's what Chapter 8 is about. We did finish this chapter today. Um, the next chapter is going to be on the Ecuadorian embassy. I don't know why the clock reads 1747. I know we're later than that. At, um, at 5.10 p.m., we started at 4.15 so we're we're five minutes below the hour. Uh, let's see here. Okay, I can't accept the invite about an hour from home, so I'll shut up and drop some links instead. <laughs> we would be grateful to you. Um, now we'll probably close out soon if nobody jumps up here to talk. Uh, there will be um, a place in the published area where you can like the quote box. You can drop a link to papers and resources in that box, and then people who want to come back to the episode to read it, um, just cite titles of papers. It would be really helpful. And if there's anything else that anyone would like to say or quote, it would be really great. Other than that, I think I'm going to wrap it there. Thank you for listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. We'll be back tomorrow, probably with more reading. This has been day 22 of 100 Days of Colin. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio Podcasts, and Colin. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com.